Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Crisis Management. I'm Alicia Sikirska. This is a show dedicated to helping businesses navigate their way through the coronavirus pandemic. On today's episode, we're going to be talking about COVID-19 cases spiking in Canada, new testing coming to Ontario pharmacies, and what the CEO of Scotiabank is calling on the government to include in its pandemic recovery plan. Now, we've also heard a lot about how retailers should be focusing on attracting new and younger shoppers to their stores, but has the pandemic changed things? We're going to talk about customer segmentation, what businesses need to know about that, as well as payment methods. Now, to get through all those topics, I am joined once again by Mark Satov. He is the founder of Satov Consultants and a business strategy expert. He's here to help us find solutions for businesses that are dealing with the pandemic. Mark, welcome back to the show. We've got lots of really interesting retail topics to discuss today. Yes, it's great to be here. And when I say here, I mean, it's great to be here on the show. It's not as great to be here in Ontario lately, given all that's going on. So hopefully we'll generate some positive vibes eventually. Yes. Yeah. But I I do think that's a good place to start the show that is about COVID-19 impact on businesses is the cases, the rise in cases that we are seeing, uh, not just in Ontario, but also Quebec and in other areas across the country. Today, Ontario reported 478 cases, while Quebec had 489. Um, Ontario Premier Doug Ford, he held a Saturday press conference. We haven't seen one of those in a while to announce a reduction to to the gathering limits um, outside and indoors as well. We've also seen health officials across the province uh, and in Quebec uh, confirm that, yes, we are in the midst of a second wave. Mark, you've been talking about the need for businesses to plan for a second wave for months now. I mean, do you think this is the time that that having those plans is going to pay off for businesses? Uh, Yes, I I think I've also been talking about the government's need to plan for a second wave. And we did have a little negotiation before the show about which adjectives I was allowed to use to describe our premier. And I'll just say that I lost the battle with our producer. And I'll just say he's not quite as intellectual as I would like him to be. uh, And he's proving that. And I think that um, on a serious note, you know, shame on them for spending the last six months or squandering the last six months when we are still here without a testing plan that is very clear, uh, without without a school plan that is very clear, uh, and with a plan that actually allowed bars and restaurants and gyms uh, and strip clubs, for goodness sake, to open up, uh, which were not, some of which were sort of more essential than others, obviously, some not essential at all. Uh, And here we are in a bad state, which in my opinion is at least partially avoidable. So uh, I think we have to find a way to get out of it uh, and businesses, I mean, businesses have to find a way to live through it uh, and, mm-hmm. and you know, we have to find a way out of it. Yeah. So, I mean, speaking of 
that way out of it. Testing has been one of the biggest uh, concerns, especially over the last uh, week or so uh, here in Ontario. We've seen you know huge lineups at some testing centers across the province with some facilities running out of testing capacity as soon as they open the doors to the public in the morning. Um, this week, the Ontario government changed uh, regulations that will allow pharmacists to administer COVID-19 tests. Um, Premier Doug Ford has said that... Um, that testing at pharmacies will be for asymptomatic people. Um, Mark, testing is such a critical part of the response to COVID-19. Um, do you think getting pharmacies involved is the right move right now? For sure. I'm going I'm to back us up a, a little bit because uh, I'm not obviously a voice that people listen to in terms of how to manage a pandemic, nor should they. But I will say that from the very beginning, I have said that if the government gets testing right, it will be a much quicker end to this thing. If you get testing that is cheap and fast and accurate, that is actually our greatest hope of getting through this. And that's why I'm so upset uh, that we've not done a great job there. I went for a COVID test myself, I guess, a week ago. Uh, I had something that I was pretty sure was not a symptom. I thought that the guidance was, even if you're asymptomatic, if you just want to be sure, you should go. And our office is open. I just did not feel responsible not getting a test. So I went uh, at 7 a.m., to a center that was open at 8 a.m. Uh, and I got out of there at 9.30 and I was one of the lucky ones and there were people coming in way after me and to your point, so many people got turned away. So the issue is not only that at the collection site, then you have the issue at the analysis site because mm -hmm. I, I, I don't know how it's all going, but that analysis to some degree is centralized. And so we need to actually solve for collection and then we need to make sure that as we do that, we don't create a further bottleneck um, in the analysis. To answer your question directly, I generally think that the pharmacies is a good idea. It's not without its complexity. It's certainly not without its controversy. Uh, we do a lot of work in the retail pharmacy area. It's just one of those things that we, we happen to be engaged uh, on, including a project that we're doing right now, not related to this. Uh, and I'll say pharmacies uh, are a tool for the government to use to reduce healthcare costs overall. Uh, and one of the reasons that uh, they will not legislate all the profit away from the prescription fee is that they need pharmacists at times like this, at times when they give the flu shot to actually deliver health care that doctors don't need to give in a way that is cheaper, but also just relieves capacity. I think the trick will be, how do you do triage, right? Because what they're now saying is, I hope what they're saying is, we want to have enough capacity for asymptomatic and symptomatic but we want to separate that capacity. I hope what they're going to do is also create a prioritization. If I am symptomatic, theoretically, I should have a, a shorter wait time to get my results than somebody who is asymptomatic. Hopefully the people who are asymptomatic are, you know, like me, I was pretty sure not, but you never know. And I, I just wanted to be responsible with people I was meeting or I'm going to see my mother or something. Not my mother, that's not an old age home. I'm just being illustrative. Uh, or for some reason, I'm going to a place where I need a test. Great, go to the pharmacy versus, you know, I have this new dry cough. I'm really feeling unwell. You know, what do I need to do? The trick will be, you need to get people to be honest about which line they want to go in. And I think a lot of people are going to prefer to go to their pharmacy. Uh, whereas I think the people who are in the pharmacy uh, who are not going there for tests are going to prefer that they are not there. So I think right. there's a huge logistical challenge here, but I, I, I think we should find a way through it because I think mm -hmm. it's a great, uh, I'll say, relief measure, right? Yeah, and I think another part of it too is going to be that messaging because for so many months they've been emphasizing 
even if you don't have symptoms, go get tested, go, you know, really trying to push those numbers up. And now that we're at the point where it seems like at least anecdotally, you hear about people that are asymptomatic and then people that have, you know, symptoms that really could be COVID are unable to get tested. And so, yeah, if it, if the pharmacies, if that can uh, ease that burden and still get the overall testing up in a timely fashion, I think that will be good for everyone. I think that I think that pharmacies will need to think about uh, how to actually triage effectively, but also how to uh, I'll say segregate the lineups. So it'll be a little bit dependent on how many entrances they have. Do they have a parking lot where they could put a little tent up? Uh, is there a way to make everybody else in the store feel safe? Mm-hmm. Because even though, and I'm pretty sure uh, that asymptomatic people are less likely to spread it. Uh, even if they have it, they do spread it, but they don't spread it quite as much because their viral load is 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 lower. I think that is the case. Uh, I, I think people should not be as concerned about asymptomatic people if they're wearing masks and being distant in a pharmacy. But I think there'll be a psychological thing and they just won't want to have them around. And so I think the pharmacies need to be very careful about how they, I'll say, physically seg- uh, segregate the line. But also they will need education in the stores. They will need signage that says, you know, here's how we're managing it. Here's why you don't need to worry. Mm-hmm. Here's what we're doing to to keep you safe. And here's why it's important that we're doing this, right? Yeah. As always, lots of logistics to deal with yeah, when it sure, comes to sure. testing and all that. Um, but Mark, let's move on to another topic. Uh, tomorrow, the federal government is going to be unveiling its throne speech where uh, it will outline the plan for the pandemic recovery. Uh, many groups have, of course, been weighing in and, and trying to lobby the government on what its priorities should be as we go through this next phase of the pandemic, including the CEO of Scotiabank. Uh, Brian Porter wrote an opinion piece in the Globe and Mail this week, calling on the government to provide more support for childcare. And he argues that this can be done in two ways. Uh, one is to top up the Canada child benefit uh, for $5,000 per year per child, as well. Number two would be to dramatically increase the Canada child tax credit that would allow uh, parents to fully deduct the cost of preschool. He wrote that the plan to put Canada on a path to economic recovery must enable women to enter the workforce and build a meaningful career. Uh, we've discussed women in the workforce and the you know impact of the she session, and now I guess it's the she recovery or she recovery. I don't know what you want to call it, but um, Mark, I mean, what do you? make of this push towards providing more child care support? Do you think this is something that the government should be looking at for that throne speech tomorrow? I think we're behind a lot of other OECD countries uh, in the degree to which our provinces, they're not all equal because uh, child care is provincial, but generally speaking, I think we're behind other OECD countries in terms of how we um, all say support women in the workplace. And you know, if you like in so many areas, if you just put the ideological stuff aside and assume that generally people would be, uh, I'll say, aligned with women should have the same opportunity for a career as men do, put that aside for a second if you don't want to go there and just look at the money and look at look at look at the the facts and say, why do we want to not have fifty percent of our workforce be as productive as the other fifty percent, and how are we going to compete as an economy with the rest of the world, which we always do? if we are, I'll say, dis- putting a disadvantage in 50% of the workplace. Uh, and, I, and I think that that's uh, the argument that he's presenting. I think also 
I mean, obviously he's speaking in terms of fairness and what type of society we all want to live in, which is great, but I think he's making an economic argument, pure and simple. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, by the way, it's interesting. I noticed that the banks, I, I think there was something in the article about the fact that the banks all came together uh, to have a sort of joint point of view on this. You sort of okay. The grocery stores, they came together to agree that they should cut the uh, the pandemic pay of $2. Allegedly, and, they will argue they did not. They all allegedly. say they did not. Yeah. 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 Would you like to know what I believe? And then the banks came together to do something that I think is very worthwhile. And you know me, I'm not one to give uh, praise to the banks if they don't deserve it. And so you know that you could trust it uh, when I say this is a great thing that they're doing. Uh, and, and I think I think it's important for society. Like I say, it's important because we want to live uh, in a society where everybody has the same chance. But it's important because we don't want to fall behind other countries. Yeah. And I do. Th- I do think it's interesting that um, it's I mean, this is something that has been discussed by economists for a long time, but it's very much, it feels like it's been more mainstream through this pandemic that uh, childcare needs to be a priority, not just for women, but just for the entire workforce to be able to be more productive and actually be able to get the economy back on its feet because (laughs) the school has been, schooling has been such a huge question throughout all of this. I feel like um, there are a couple of issues that have always been there in our society and the pandemic has sort of been a catalyst for uh, an acceleration of focus. Uh, and I think that this issue in terms of, you know, making sure that there's access to childcare uh, and also making sure that women have, you know, the right opportunity to get back to work is one of them. And telemedicine is the other one we've talked about a lot, but I think yeah. this is one that's getting a lot of, uh, a lot of attention and as it should. Yeah. Um, well, we'll see what what ends up happening in the throne speech tomorrow, and I'm sure we will be talking about it on Thursday. I'm um, sure our prime minister will put it in there, which is different from will he actually act on it, as we see. There's a little different there, but yeah, see that yeah, as it may. Definitely. But uh, before we get to our next segment, let's just quickly talk about some of the retail trends that we have been seeing out there uh, in this COVID-19 recovery. Uh, retail sales grew in July, although more modestly than we saw in the month earlier, just by 0.6%, uh, perhaps indicating that that pent-up demand we saw um, has kind of slowed down now. Vehicle sales were the biggest driver for retail sales in July. Um, and while we've seen the recovery when it comes to retail sales, the service sector ha- is still lagging behind, even as restaurants and, and other services have been given the green light to reopen. Um, Mark, what do you think this latest data shows about the state and the pace of the recovery in the retail industry? Well, it's interesting because, you know, you and I were comparing stats before the show, and I think we both noticed a similar thing, which is that the retail sales, which is some percentage uh, uh, the uh, portion of our GDP that is related to goods, uh, and it's actually a really small percentage because you think of the whole supply chain, import, export, etc. Uh, that is actually now back at the level that it was last year, uh, so month to month. And whenever I look at retail stats, I always want to compare like months and previous years as opposed to the previous month because it's a better indicator. But here it gets complicated because, as you say, there's this whole pent up demand thing. Uh, so I think retail sales. I think generally speaking, goods, uh, the purveyance of goods will actually remain strong because I think most companies and most industry sectors have figured out how to get their goods to market. And I think unless the economy takes a much greater crash than predicted in the next few months, I think people will still want to buy stuff. And uh, by the way, the other thing we saw in those numbers, uh, just because I like to point out when I'm right, uh, is that e-commerce took a giant drop in July. 
a giant drop. Why so those levels are balancing it? out. Right. Yeah. It's as though I predicted it. But anyway, so, um, uh, but, but on the services side, uh, I think that it's, it's separate from the economy. It's, I'll say they're, uh, they're, they're, they're coincidental, but they're not perfectly correlated in the sense that uh, the, when, if the economy gets back completely because the virus is in a much better state, then people will go and use services again. Uh, but right now, to your point, you know, bars and restaurants are open. Uh, and to some degree, some of them are, are doing okay, but they're not doing as well as they were before. I'm assuming a lot of people are like me uh, in the sense that, you know, I will go to a patio uh, in September and October because I think of everything in terms of risk and reward. I don't want to not go out at all. I don't want to not socialize at all. I think there's some small risk there, but what I'm w- willing to take. I have no need to go and sit inside a restaurant. I just, I could do without that for the next six or eight months. And I think the risk there is greater. And so even though restaurants are open, I don't think people are going. And we for sure know that people aren't staying at hotels and uh, flying on airlines and a lot of other services that are that are in there. And so I think the services sector, the economy can sputter along. And in a sense, I'm not as worried about all the individual numbers because I think they'll move around. I think we generally know that until the virus I don't want to say it's behind us, but significantly behind us. You know, it's going to be hard to feel perfectly confident about the future. Uh, And I think it's also safe to say that services are going to lag just because many people won't feel safe doing them, which is which is the right thing. And I think we're going to see some service shut down in the next few months. I just think that the government is going to have to say that uh, some things were not are going to have to go back to stage two. I, I don't know how they leave it here. 478 and very few deaths is one thing. When we get to 600 and 800, and if the death count starts to climb, I think everybody's going to say, you can't, you got to do something, right? And yeah. I, right, rightfully so. So Yeah. And it does seem like with the, as you said, with the services, um, it do, it's not so much dependent on the economic recovery and if people have their jobs and hold on to it and you know have the income to spend on things it's it's much more tied to the state of the pandemic and the virus and how comfortable you feel so it's different than just going out and ordering things online even though people seem to be doing less of that as you pointed out okay mark we're gonna take a quick break and when we come back we'll get your advice and dig into some of the issues that businesses are dealing with Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. As we've discussed on the show, the COVID-19 pandemic has changed many aspects of the retail industry, both permanently and temporarily. It's changed how we shop with the slight rise of e-commerce, pushing more customers online, um, and the introduction of things like curbside pickup and delivery. And it's also changed shopping habits. For example, at grocery stores, we're seeing uh, customers buy more things in fewer trips. And so another way that the pandemic may change things is how retailers approach their customers. We've heard a lot about the need to reach out to Gen Z and millennials. And um, do you think the pandemic has changed that? I mean, how should retailers and businesses 
uh, be approaching their customers in this pandemic or post-pandemic? Um, what's the fix here, Mark? Okay, so if you'll permit me, I'm gonna I'm gonna give a bit of a primer on segmentation and and how we view it, just because that's something that my company does often. We advise people, uh, companies, I should say, on segmentation. And a yeah. pet peeve us, of mine, Give us the basics here. <laughs> I'll give you the basics from my, my perspective of the basics, right? So um, a pet peeve of mine is that when everybody talks about segmentation, uh, everybody says, millennials, millennials, millennials. <laughs> uh, and every marketing conference you go to, there is some pundit who is a keynote speaker who says, the world has changed. Uh, it's nothing like it whatever it was before. The millennials are here and they're nothing like anybody else. And I'm going to tell you three reasons why that's wrong. Uh, the first reasons, uh, the first reason that it's wrong is that uh, millennials are uh, only one aspect of segmentation, right? And so when we think about segmentation, as we advise our customers, our clients, we say segmentation is based on the demographics of your group. Segmentation is based on the purchase behaviors. So what do they buy? And their life attitudes. And so you, I, I'm going to guess, I don't know your actual age and you don't have to say on air. I'm going to guess you're a millennial technically. Sure am. Sure am. Right. <laughs> and you don't have to guess that I'm not. Although one of my employees once called me a baby boomer and I wasn't allowed to fire him for that. But uh, just, just. <laughs> Were so you tempted? Uh, yeah, I found another reason. So he's gone. But uh, I am a, I am a generation Xer. So um, it, if you think about yourself, you're a millennial and think about 10 friends that you have. Uh, do they all have the same taste in food? They all have the same taste in music. Do some spend a lot and some save a lot? Are some really outdoorsy and some do other things? Uh, do some like Lululemon while some other people like Nike? And so- Completely different. We're all completely different. You're completely different. And millennials, everybody's been talking about the fact that they are going to be uh, uh, the largest generation very soon in terms of the spenders, but they're so different. And so mistake number one, don't lump all millennials together. Mistake number two, what people talk about about millennials is actually very similar to what people said about uh, kids in the 60s. So their social consciousness, uh, they don't work hard, they're not serious, they're irreverent, a whole bunch of things. And if you look at a lot of quotes, you won't be able to tell the difference between what people say about millennials today and what people said about children uh, or people coming of age in the 60s. And uh, it's very important because people like to exaggerate the difference. And I would say we have major societal trends that are happening you know, the digital trend, obviously, obviously being the greatest one. Uh, a lot of the other ones are not really trends. Social consciousness is not really a trend. It's something that people talk about a lot. People give a lot of lip service to it. But you see a lot of uh, people will say one thing when they don't have kids and then their lifestyle changes and they make all sorts of different choices. Um, so, you know, it's really important to sort of think about the different ways to segment your consumers. Uh, and not assume that it is all linked to their demographics and not assume that everybody within a demographic group uh, is similar. And what I find interesting about the pandemic is that one assumption that people make is that uh, millennials and Gen Z uh, compared to Gen X and baby boomers and even, you know, my parents who are, uh, they're just a little too old for baby boomers, so I think they're the greatest generation or whatever, uh, that millennials and younger are, are much more digital and much more DIY and everybody else is much more old school and paper and advice and all the rest. And actually we've done studies for different companies that show that's not always the case, right? And so you have to look at people and people who have preferences. Like I, um, uh, as, as a person, so I'm Gen X, uh, compared to a lot of my friends, I'm actually less digital in certain things, 
Like I like to read the newspaper once a week physically. I like to read books. I don't read eBooks, but yet I know many people who are my generation who don't. Uh, and so you really need to find a way to get to know your customers. But during the pandemic, what's interesting is that we may find that some of the younger people actually are more comfortable going out and some of the older people who are more worried about catching the virus are more likely to stay home and want to do things digitally. And so despite the fact that I just said it's not always the case, of course, there is some degree to which it's true that people who like digital channels skew younger. But during the pandemic, I think we're seeing that flip on its head. So the main message about segmentation, and I've mentioned it before for people, is don't make assumptions that because your customer base is younger or older, they want a certain thing. Think about your product. Think about what it is that attracts people to your product and think about how that's different from other products or your competition. And again, most importantly, talk to your customers. Try and create personas around the different people that come to your store and think about what they want and why, and then tailor your messaging, your promotions and everything to them. So I'm sorry, there's a long-winded primer. I just, I feel that people simplify the topic and it's actually, you know, it doesn't have to be so complicated, but it's not, I'll say, as simple as just millennials want this and yeah, and there's else. just a lot more nuance in in For individual sure. shopping habits. And I mean, so instead of approaching it by uh, strict demographics, there are lots of things to consider here. Um, like, what are some examples, or, or how how should businesses be looking at their customers and um, not necessarily grouping them, but but making sure that you're responding to their needs that have perhaps changed through the pandemic? Like, I think about those grocery shoppers that go in. Right and buy more things at once um, or that are, you know, panic buying sometimes. Like we're seeing that resurgence now. For sure. um, how, how should you be thinking about segmenting your customers in this pandemic then? I'm happy you brought up the, the grocery thing because one of the things that's, that we talk about often, which is relevant often in grocery, but to some degree everywhere is you have an individual, but they fall into different segments depending on why they're coming to the store. So if you go to the store, you know, some families will do it one night a week or on the weekends, or uh, if somebody's, you know, not working outside the home, they may do it during the week, they do their weekly shop. And then so they may come uh, at a separate time as a fill-in order, or they may come as an emergency because they forgot something or they need a gift or they need a, a meal. And so you actually need to think about the different ways that you are uh, sort of selling and the different times. And so one of the things to do is actually take the data you have and try and create buckets of people by how much they spend and how much they spend each time. And in uh, the retail world, it's something we often do and small retailers could do it as well. They may have not the same data tools, basket analysis. So mm -hmm. what do people buy? You know, when they buy this, what do they also buy? And then when you look at that, you could do things like, uh, well, it's interesting. Some people, uh, when they buy this, also buy this, but not everybody does. Well, why don't I put a promotion on so that everybody does that and then I could act, get people to fill their baskets. So there's a whole bunch of things you can do when you just take the time to talk to your customers, ask them their attitudes. Don't only ask them their attitudes about uh, what they see in the store, but ask them their attitudes about life things to the extent they permit you. You may have an electronic survey and then use that to sort of group people and sort of find interesting connections, right?
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm glad this didn't. This is a really interesting conversation that didn't devolve into just millennial bashing and blaming us yeah. for spending too much on avocado toast and Starbucks oh, and that's, or whatever. I it thought is. I thought I have time for that next because I have plenty of millennial bashing. Despite everything I said, I still want to bash them. <laughs> you no, know, no, we're all out of time. We're gonna okay. go on to our next segment. Um, I do want to talk about one more topic that is important for retailers since we're talking all about what retailers should be doing through this pandemic, and that's payment methods. Touchless payment was on the rise before the pandemic, and it, this seems to be one of those trends that was just accelerated by the pandemic. Uh, one report from the U.S. said that touchless payments have increased by more than 150% uh, through the pandemic. So, Mark, as spending habits change, uh, what should retailers be thinking about when it comes to payment methods and that technology? Is this the time to adopt something if you've been thinking about making the switch? I mean, what's the fix here? Right. So uh, it was interesting. So uh, I'll just give a shout out to Evan Fulford on my team. He does a lot of the research on some of these shows and he was doing the research for this. And he said, well, you know, it's interesting. People are, are, are talking about contactless so much, but actually if you go to somewhere where you actually have to put a tip, then contactless is kind of moot. It's a moot point because you have to actually press the keypad <laughs> on the thing. And so what's the point? Um, and, but it is an important point because contactless in many situations does save uh, the contact, which again, in my opinion, from the research I've read, is not the greatest way people are cashing this anyway. Um, but it is just more efficient. And I think the payment uh, providers have actually done the greatest, um, I'll say, part of the work here in that they increased the limit from 100 to 250. And the way they calculate those limits, by the way, uh, is essentially by calculating their default risk uh, and what they're ready to accept. Uh, as a default risk and how that relates to uh, transaction size, et cetera. And they said that during the pandemic, what they could do uh, is get their heads around the fact that they want to promote commerce and they're going to raise it from 100 to 250. So I think mm -hmm. generally speaking, uh, your payment providers are going to do the work for you and tell you what you need to do. I think your decisions are around what you accept. And so I think it's time to accept Apple Pay if you don't already. Uh, and again, that can be facilitated by, you know, Moneris or whoever does your payment uh, in your store. I think that despite the temptation to not accept cash, it is not legal to not accept cash. And when I go into a store and they say, we don't accept cash, I'm going to take a picture and I'm going to put it out on Twitter. And I'm going to say, you have to accept cash because as much as cash is slowly, uh, reducing its use in our society, it's not going away. And remember that there are many people, uh, who don't have a bank account. Right. Uh, and cash is the only way that tra they transact. Not everybody is wealthy enough to uh, have credit cards for sure. Uh, so one thing is you have to accept cash. It's illegal not to. And the other thing is I am going to slam somebody. Uh, if you're a retail store and you're not a restaurant, don't accept Amex. Because here's the story. Uh, Amex is way more expensive than Visa or MasterCard. Uh, and people who have an Amex, I have an Amex for a bunch of reasons. It's good for travel and other things. And I like the perks. So I like it as a uh, consumer, but I understand that not a lot of people accept it. And I am going to have an alternative card for those times where I want to pay. And they say, no, you need your visa. And the reason not to accept it, by the way, is that they've not figured out the technology. And so you go to a store, I don't know if you've seen this or if you have an Amex, but you go to a store and you touch with the contact list and they say, oh, no, it doesn't work for Amex. I swear about half the time. And so then you have to go and do it anyway. And so Amex has not done a good job at, at their technology on contactless. And also for retail stores, they charge, you know, an extra percent or two of interchange, which is already very high. And so your consumers will understand if you um, 
if you don't accept it. So no offense to Amex, you could change that and get more business. Uh, but I would say you need to have the range of popularly accepted, commonly accepted payment methodologies. Mm -hmm. You need to have cash. You're allowed to discourage it. You know, you're allowed to say, geez, we would prefer if you have a credit card. Uh, but I don't think you could say no cash. Yeah. Um, interestingly, uh, my credit card information was stolen over oh, this pandemic. Yeah. Um, somewhere online, like, cause I physically had my card. Um, and it's interesting, like same thing happened a few years back, but even then it was a lot harder for me to continue without that credit card. And now right. there are so many other options that it made it, it was like a seamless transition before I got my new one. Right. Um, but Mark, that is actually all the time that we have today for the show. Uh, if you want to rewatch this episode or get more news about the economic impact of the coronavirus pandemic, please check out Yahoo Finance Canada's website. We're also a podcast, so make sure you check us out on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and subscribe. And if you have any questions for Mark or feedback about the show, you can get in touch with me via email. I'm at alicja at yahoofinance.com. Thanks for tuning in. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.